The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know about you, but I'm crying over here. Debbie's here, so I'm crying. Um, on Mother's Day, I was trying to think about how to incorporate some more Mother's Day into my sermon. And my mother-in-law texted me. I was on a walk. And she sent me this photo. This was a couple days ago. And she said, I found a nest in the wreath on our door. And I look at that photo, and I wonder, who taught that mother to make a nest? Like, how does that bird know how to care for her unborn children that will hopefully hatch? And there are so many ordinary moments like this in our lives that I think we just miss. Because when I look at that nest, actually, if you want to put it back up there, there's a little bit of fuzz and some kind of warmth that the mother had gathered and put inside the nest. And I just wonder, how does this bird know to be a mother already? And there are so many times in our lives where things are really sacred and special and spiritual, but we just walk past them. And there's something about a mother where they just know how to love, they know how to do things, and they don't have to be taught because it's literally wired into their DNA, and God has made them in such a way where they know how to love for their children. And so we're going to watch a short video, short-ish, it's eight and a half minutes, And I don't necessarily theologically agree with this video 100%. It's not a Christian video, but I think it does a good job of explaining what ordinary life looks like and what it looks like to find meaning on a daily basis. Some of you might have heard this video or seen it before. Um, David Foster Wallace is the author, and it was actually a commencement speech that he gave. There are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life-or-death importance. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. There happen to be whole, large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I'm talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day, and you get up in the morning, go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job, and you work hard for eight or ten hours, and at the end of the day you're tired and somewhat stressed, and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early, because of course you have to get up the next day and do it all again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. And so now, after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. 
It's the end of a work day, and the traffic is apt to be very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket is very crowded. Because, of course, it's the time of day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping. But you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts, et cetera, et cetera, cutting stuff out because it's a long ceremony. And eventually, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the end of the day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. And then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your cart with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, littery parking lot and then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush-hour traffic, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone here has done this, of course, but it hasn't yet been part of you graduates' actual life routine, day after week, after month, after year. But it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is going to come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are and how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or at how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply, personally unfair this is. If I choose to think this way in the store and on the freeway, fine, lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic that it doesn't have to be a choice. It is my natural default setting. It's the automatic way that I experience the boring, frustrating, crowded parts of adult life when I'm operating on the automatic, unconscious belief that I am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. The thing is that, of course, there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations. In this traffic, all these vehicles stuck and idling in my way. It's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that their therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have much harder, more tedious or painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think I'm giving you moral advice, or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way, or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it, because it's hard. It takes will and effort, 
And if you are like me, some days you won't be able to do it or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicles department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific, infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's also not impossible. It just depends what you want to consider. If you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and who and what is really important, if you want to operate on your default setting, then you, like me, probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable. But if you've really learned how to think, how to pay attention, then you will know you have other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell-type situation as not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire with the same force that lit the stars. Love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff's necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound. What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it whatever you wish. But please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us all the time, that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. This is water. So I show that video not because I necessarily theologically agree with everything. I would maybe replace or add to the word awareness, faith, because we can extract meaning from our ordinary lives all the time. But it's hard to do when you're frustrated and tired and in the grocery checkout line and everything's taking forever. And it was funny, I was preparing for this sermon on a flight home from Denver a couple weekends ago. And my husband and I have this trick at Hobby Airport where he picks me up at the arrivals instead of the departures. So if, if I meet him up on the top floor, there's no traffic. 
And so I was standing up there with my luggage, and I was watching Ellen on YouTube. I don't know why. And he showed up, and I grabbed my bags and went in his car, and we got home. And I realized that I maybe forgot my purse at Hobby Airport, potentially on the curb that I was standing at watching Ellen. And so my husband called Southwest Airlines, and Southwest didn't have it because I was standing in the street. Like, I'm positive my purse is in the street. And so they gave us a number for the city of Houston. <laughs> and I'm like, that does not sound promising. So I called the number, and I'm like, hello, Houston? <laughs> It's me. I live inside of you. Um, turns out they actually did have my purse. And my husband was like, what is in your purse? And I said, just my computer and my wallet and my social security card. He's like, why would you bring your social security card? Like, I don't know. Don't ask me these questions. So we drove back and I'm practicing this sermon on my husband. He's like my, my practice buddy. He hears it first. And I'm practicing this sermon on the way to the airport to pick up this bag. And he's, he's a little bit frustrated because what you guys don't know is this is actually the second time that I've left my purse at Hobby Airport. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm preaching this sermon and I stop and I say, you know, this could be an opportunity for us to find sacred meaning because this is water. And he said, not today. Not today. So my point is, it's hard to find God in frustrating moments. And the last thing you want to do is preach at your husband in a moment like that. But I do believe that it's possible and that when we're going through our ordinary lives, we can extract an extraordinary meaning. And if you think about it, Almost every story in the Bible is a story about resurrecting something extraordinary out of ordinary life. I made a chart, and this chart could be much longer, but I just picked four characters. Four ordinary characters that God saw something extraordinary in. Moses was living in the desert, a total failure as the prince of Egypt but God called him to deliver a nation. God called him to part the sea, this ordinary guy. Or David was a teenage shepherd boy facing a massive Goliath that was taunting the Israelites. And God used David to defeat the giant and become the king of a nation. David, just this ordinary guy in an ordinary human body. Or you think of Mary, a poor teenage refugee living in Nazareth. God calls her to be the mother of Jesus. The reason we're all here today is because of Jesus. And a teenage ordinary girl brought him into the world. Or Simon Peter was just an average fisherman. And Jesus called Peter to build the church. In Matthew 16, There's a story of Jesus calling Peter to something greater. Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? 
The disciples responded, some say John the Baptist and some say Elijah and some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus turned to Peter and you, who do you say that I am? Peter responded, you are the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. Simon, son of Jonah, your knowledge is a mark of blessing. For you didn't learn this truth from your friends or from teachers or from sages you've met on the way. I think that line is critical. You didn't learn this truth from teachers or from sages you've met on the way. If you think of the video, he said in that commencement speech, you didn't learn this in school. You didn't learn how to find meaning in ordinary life. Or that mother that built the nest for her baby chicks, she didn't learn in a formal education how to make a nest and care for baby chicks. She was tapped into something spiritual and sacred that's wired within who we were made to be. And I think that's what Jesus is calling out of Simon Peter. He's saying, hey, you, you didn't learn this from anyone, but you're tapped into something, some kind of truth that's beyond our comprehension. So she, he goes on to say, you learned it from my Father in heaven. This is why I have called you Peter Rock. For on this rock, I will build my church. The church will reign triumphant even at the gates of hell. And so Jesus saw something extraordinary in an ordinary man. Um, I've preached here a couple of times before, and I find it hard. My, my faith journey has very much been um, through a process of recovering. And I've been transparent with you all before that I had a problem with addiction to a prescription medication for about five years. And I go to group meetings on Wednesday mornings at 10 o'clock a.m. And in one of the group meetings I was at, somebody asked me when my rock bottom was. And the narrative of addiction is normally you have a rock bottom and then you get better. That's the narrative that's a lot of times out there. But my story didn't really go like that. And I told them lots of days that I wasn't proud of, but that wasn't the day that I decided I wanted to change. My rock bottom was actually a really good day. My husband and I had just landed from London, and I had gone two days in London without any pills. And again, there's nothing wrong with taking medication. That's not what this is about. I was abusing it, totally different. But I had gone two days in a row without taking any pills. And this was unheard of for me. And so as soon as we landed, I got my script, I dropped it off at Walgreens, and I went on a walk. And I was just waiting for, for my refill. And on that walk, a bee kind of buzzed by my ear, and it landed in the center of this hot yellow flower. And I had just had Greek yogurt with honey on it, so I started thinking about like how honey comes from little things like that, and how bees pollinate our planet. And everything was beautiful, and it was like 75 and sunny, which never happens in Houston. And there were animals outside, and people walking dogs, 
in big fluffy clouds in the air. And what I realized in that moment is that when you numb, you can't selectively numb. So I had gone on this walk so many other times in my life, and I never realized that it was sacred and extraordinary and beautiful. Because when you numb the pain or the loneliness or the anxiety, and you can numb in a number of ways, booze, pills, shopping, porn, there's all kinds of ways to numb. But when you numb your negative emotions, you also numb the joy. And that's what I realized on that walk, is that I had been missing out on exploring the ordinary beauty and resurrecting a sacred meaning on that simple walk. And I never used a pill again after that day. And so I truly believe that oftentimes the extraordinary, the sacred moments are hiding in plain sight, in a bird's nest, on a walk, coffee with a friend, a connection with a stranger. That's where I think the opportunity for sacred meaning is. It's when you're frustrated in the grocery aisle. That's when you can find God all around. Uh, Brené Brown recently released her Netflix special. Is any, did anybody watch it? Raise your hand if you've seen it. It's pretty good. So Brené Brown is a social worker and researcher at U of H. And in her Netflix special, she said something that really caught my attention. She said, when a family loses a loved one and they go through the process of grief, it's often the little things that they forgot to see that they end up missing. And she gave an example of this family that lost their child, and the child would always slam the screen door when they wanted to go outside, and it was really annoying. And she said, what I wouldn't give to have one more day where I could hear that screen door and slam. Because I think the ordinary magic in our lives often gets overlooked when we're not tuned in to our lives as spiritual and sacred. Um, I'm, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to preach at my grandpa's church. And my grandpa passed away. And it's a really special time for me, so I've been thinking a lot about my grandpa. He was Reverend Weirwell, and he was this pastor of this beautiful church. Um, that's the United Church of Christ in New Glarus, Wisconsin. I got married there. My parents got married there. All four of my grandparents had their funerals there. So it's a really special place in my family. And I've been thinking a lot about my grandpa because I have this coming up. And when I was young, I told my grandpa I was gonna be in the NBA, which I'm still waiting for that dream, and that I was gonna be a pastor. And he never got to see me become a pastor because in college I changed my mind. So I'm, it's really sentimental that I'm going to preach at his church and that I'm doing what I always told them I would do. And if I had one more day with my grandpa, I wouldn't want to hear him give a beautiful sermon or write a beautiful invocation at a big event. I would love to sit next to my grandpa and listen to him yell at the referees at a Texan game. 
because he would yell. I, I played basketball in high school, and according to my grandpa, I could do no wrong. So if I missed a shot, I got fouled. No way I missed it on my own. And he would take off his glasses, and his swear word, the swear word of choice for my grandpa was Mickey Mouse. It used to embarrass me. It made no sense. He'd say, "That's a Mickey Mouse call," and I'd be like, "Grandpa, nobody even knows what that means, in including me." And he'd take off his glasses and he'd shake them at the refs. He'd sit at half court, front row, shake them at the refs as they ran by, in insinuating that they needed glasses because clearly I was fouled. So this used to embarrass me so bad. And I hated when my grandpa would do that. And everybody loved him because they knew he was a pastor. And he was like this old man, and that was angry at the games. And everybody loved him. And I thought it was so embarrassing. But I'd kill to have another moment with my grandpa like that. There's a picture of me and my grandpa after a college basketball game. Um, I'm wearing eyeliner because I didn't play. <laughs> That's how you know that I wasn't the star. But he came to all my basketball games. I have one photo of my grandpa in the stands, just one, and sure enough, <laughs> he's yelling. That's at the high school game. He'd always have this hat, and the other side of it, you can't see it. It'd have a feather in it. He wore it everywhere. And so, what I miss about my grandpa is really ordinary. What I see now in him yelling at the refs. Is this love for his granddaughter that just thought I could do no wrong? But I didn't see it at the time. I just saw my weird, loud, annoying grandfather. And so I think this video and God's invitation of finding extraordinary in the ordinary—I think that's also our invitation. How can we not miss those moments and see them as sacred while they're happening? Why does it have to be after someone dies that we realize how wonderful and amazing these little things were in our lives? Rachel Hall Evans, one of my favorite theologians, passed away recently, and everyone's talking about how miraculous her work and her voice was to the Christian community. And I think, what if we would have told her that while she was alive? So I've been thinking a lot about how can we appreciate the small moments for our mothers on Mother's Day and the tiny things that often go unnoticed because that is where God happens. I truly believe that. And the definition of the word mother, in the verb tense, is to bring up a child with care and affection, to look after someone kindly and protectively, sometimes excessively so. She mothered by her older. She felt mothered by her older sister is an example. And that sentence, she felt mothered by her older sister. I think that makes it clear that to be a mother is a noun, but it's also a verb. And I think anyone can participate in the verb form of mothering. I think I was mothered by lots of counselors and my therapist and my real mom and all kinds of people have mothered me into who I am today and probably you too. And so, I think what's so fascinating about the human body and particularly the female human body is that I think as mothers we create space for others in the world, and your body literally creates space for others. 
And that process is one of the most sacred things I can think of. I have a, I have a friend who's pregnant right now, and she had her ultrasound, and her last baby's heart was not healthy, and she had her ultrasound, and the baby she's having now, all four chambers are there and pumping, and they're healthy. And she told me about this. And I said, you have four chambers in your tummy right now. And, and inside your tummy, there's gonna be toenails and fingernails and nose hairs and eyelashes. <laughs> and she's like, Erica, that's enough. You're weird. But it's true. How miraculous is that process of motherhood? And we don't often think of our bodies as spiritual and sacred. Especially in the world that we live in today, our bodies are so objectified. And in our schools, they're teaching something called media literacy, which is so important. And so our, our girls are learning that when you see the cover of a magazine, I say magazine like I'm from Wisconsin. When you see the cover of a magazine, that photo has been digitally altered, and there's two hours of hair and makeup. And so women are learning that even the person on that cover doesn't exist like that, and that's important. But what I think is even more important than media literacy is spiritual literacy. And spiritual literacy says, the reason that cover doesn't make me feel good, it's not because I'm not thin enough or pretty enough or good enough. The reason that cover makes me feel bad is because my body was not made for selling magazines. And my body was made for so much more than to be desired. It was made to grow and create and learn and be curious and jump and run and laugh. And so when we see our body objectified in one dimension, I think the reason we feel bad is because we're spiritually literate. And we know that our bodies were made for so much more. Janine Roth, she wrote a book called Women, Food, and God. She has a quote, and she says, I went out of order, so sorry about that. Um, she said, it's never been true, not anywhere at any time, that the value of a soul, of a human spirit, is dependent on a number on a scale. We are unrepeatable beings of light and space and water who need these physical vehicles to get around. When we start defining ourselves by that which can be measured or weighed, something deep within us rebels. We want to come home to ourselves. First Corinthians, this is a quote you guys have probably all heard before. It's actually really prevalent in diet culture. And first, first Corinthians says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who comes from God and dwells inside of you? You do not own yourself. And I think first Corinthians, you can leave that up there. I think first Corinthians is hijacked by the diet industry. People say my body is my temple, so I'm gonna eat all fruits and vegetables. And there's nothing wrong with that. Eat healthy if you wanna eat healthy. But I don't think that's what this is talking about. I don't think this is dietary advice. I think this is spiritual advice that no matter what kind of body you live in, the one who is holy and divine and great is inside of you. And that's what it means to move through the world as someone who is spiritually literate, is to know that God 
is inside of ordinary you. And the invitation for you to bring out your extraordinary in your ordinary self is always there because the one who made all things dwells in you. Acts has a verse, and Paul, I think, states this really well, this idea of what it's like to live in sacred community every ordinary day. And he says, yet in truth, God is not far away, is not far from any of us. For you know the saying, we live in God, we move in God, we exist in God. And I think that video about this is water, it's a reminder that we live in God, we move in God, we exist in God. And some people will still say, where's, where's God? Just like the fish says, what is water? But when you wake up to the reality that it's always there, we have no choice but to see our lives as sacred. And so I'm gonna end on a little activity. I'm such a teacher right now. And so I have some popsicle sticks and some rocks. And on the rocks, I'm gonna write down some negative things that have happened. And on the popsicle sticks, I'm gonna write down a good thing that came out of that. So on the rock, I'm gonna write which I've already shared with you, addiction. And on the popsicle stick, I'm gonna write um, increased self-awareness. That's a good thing that came out of it. So self-awareness. I'm gonna give you 25 seconds to think of in your life one bad thing that's happened and one good thing that's happened, starting now. All right, does anybody want to share a bad thing or a good thing that has happened in their life? Divorce. I'm going to put divorce on the rock. And did anything good come out of that? Your daughter? Oh, I love that. Happy Mother's Day. Divorce and daughter. Does anybody else want to share theirs? Your cat died? Oh, I'm sorry. So I'll put grief. And did anything good happen in your life? It, so it made you appreciate life even more. I love that. So I'm going to write appreciation. Thank you for sharing. Does anybody else want to share one? Cancer. That is one that so many people struggle with. Outrageous love. I love that. We love Elizabeth. Outrageous is an understatement.
And so I think if this is water, the bad things are the rocks, the good things are the popsicle sticks. I think when we live in the Christian faith well, that this is our invitation. It's to notice that this is water. <laughs> Aw, I didn't even do anything. And you'll notice that the bad things are still there. They're still in your life. They might not go away. But the invitation of resurrect is to let the good rise to the top and create a raft for us to float on. And I think as Christians, we can float on that raft and we can extend it to others because that's what it means to live in a journey and a faith where we recognize every day that this is water. Ecclesia, let me pray with you. Dear God, I pray that as we participate in Mother's Day today, that we will recognize our mothers, our children, our friends, and recognize and appreciate their significance in ordinary life. I pray that we won't wait to miss the slamming screen door but the, that we will find beauty and meaning in our everyday lives because you are everywhere. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.